at the University of Maryland, and Reggie Jackson was playing for Leone's in Baltimore. They have a card. They list all the players in the lineup, arm, bats, throws, speed. And then you sent that card in. Six or seven years later, Jackson's lighting the, the leagues up and everything. And so someone writes a column in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Where did the Phillies go wrong? You know, here was a Philadelphia guy. He goes, there's only one card in here that had him rated as a pro prospect had tens across the board from it, and that was Joe Kozik down in Washington, D.C. That's Randy Kozik talking about his dad, Joe Kozik, and his scouting ability and how at least he saw what was coming with Reggie Jackson. Welcome to episode 23 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan for the Class of 86. This week, as we continue our bicentennial tribute to the heroes and history of Gonzaga, we're focusing on the legendary coach, Joe Kozik. Here to share stories about his dad is Randy Kozik. Randy, welcome. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity that you give me to share this. He was a uh, remarkable person, but also a character at the same time. Randy, what I want to do today is help the younger members of the Gonzaga community who maybe never knew Joe Kozik get a sense of what your dad was like. He arrived at Gonzaga in the early 1940s and was there for the better part of 50 years and passed away in 1995. And we all know about the Joe Kozik Athletic Hall of Fame. We know about the Kozik Lounge. One of the boats for the crew team has been named the Joe Kozik. But for those younger students, maybe students who've graduated in the last 20 years who never knew Joe Kozik. Let's talk a little bit about what shaped your dad. He had an amazing work ethic and it was a product probably of how he was raised. He was a son of Polish immigrants. His father was a coal miner in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Graduated from high school. He was about 19 years old. He played three sports in high school. Uh, I don't think his father wanted him to go work in the mines, so he ended up going to Penn State after high school on a, uh, a scholarship in football and baseball. But scholarship in those was a little different. You had to work. You had to work in the dining hall, waited on the tables for the faculty. When he came to Washington, D.C., after he graduated in 39 from Penn State and ended up getting a job in, at Bladensburg High School in 1940 and 1941, he coached the basketball, and uh, at the time, they had a uh, high school basketball tournament at Uline Arena, which was the indoor arena at that time in Washington. Bladensburg played in it, and they did very well. And somehow, he got connected in Gonzaga and ended up being hired in 1943 as an assistant football coach and PE teacher at Gonzaga. Gonzaga had a rich history of football at that time. In '44, he became the head coach. He did quite well. Now, Randy, after your dad graduated from Penn State and moved to the D.C. area, it wasn't just because he didn't want to work in the coal mines. He was Polish and Slavic, and, and it, you know that was that was a, a little one grade below of being in the you know, genuine eligible candidates. So that would always be kind of a, a check and minus column for him to get a job. Randy, it seems like the life experience of seeing discrimination firsthand kind of shaped the way your father stood against discrimination and racism later in life. And looking upon it, I think you're right. I think you're right, Brian. The other thing that when he was at Penn State, I think that. Really really, really struck him was uh, and, and had an impact as far as game and race and things like that was uh, played baseball, was a catcher on the, on the Penn State team. He always told his story. He said when they had a game at, at Navy, when they got out of the bus, person meeting them in the athletic department at Navy said, a black player on the team got off also and represented from the Naval Academy said, you know, you 
that ball player cannot play here. And coach turned around and I told old player, he said, gentlemen, get your bags and get on the bus. And they left, went back to the hotel they were staying at and went on to their next game. And that stuck with him. He, he learned something from that. He also worked in the recreation department for, for the District of Columbia in the late 40s and 50s. Black citizens in that neighborhood could not come into the playground. They weren't, legally were not permitted. So he saw things like that, you know, at at the, at Rosedale in particular, and I think that made an impression upon him. If he, you know, here he is, he gets out of college, and he might want to stay in Pennsylvania, find a job, and then someone tells him, you know, his supervisor says, Joe, you got a better chance of getting a job someplace else, and the state he sees that coming off the bus, that's right there, front and center, and then you get, you know, you work in the playgrounds in, in Washington, D.C., and you see what's going on there. I think over time, it has an impact. And that impact leads your father to make a very principled stand when it came to making sure that Gabe Smith had the opportunity to play football. Gabe's playing JV football, and they're at George, I believe it's George Washington at that point in time. Uh, When they're playing a JV game, coaches knew one other from the teams that you played, and it was a fraternity almost of coaches in the area. So you had relationships that were long established. So when, when Gabe was playing his JV game, the GW coach, might have been the athletic director or the varsity coach, says to my dad, is watching the game, that young man, he can't play next year. My dad said, what do you mean, Joe? You can't play him. He's black. I said, no, he's not. He's Cuban. And <laughs> he looked at my dad and said, Joe, that's not going to work. So dad did the administration and my dad did what was right. And the courage that that would have taken in the 1940s with the Boys Town games and in the early 1950s with Gabe Smith must give you a great sense of pride. He was remarkable. He had a great work ethic, my dad did. He didn't care what you were. You were a worker and you worked hard. And you got his respect. If, <laughs> if you were a ball player and you were black, or if you were Asian, whatever you were, you learned the respect that he had for you. You know, over time, he just won people over because he was right. Now, Randy, as best as you can remember, what would your dad have considered to be his favorite? We know he coached football, baseball, basketball. Do you think he had a preference? To be honest with you, I think he would probably tell people he liked football. He would also tell them he liked basketball more than anything. So <laughs> I think he... He really liked baseball more than football. <laughs> he had some stories about that, that's for sure. Now, I've heard stories that he was actually pretty connected in the world of baseball as well as a scout. Yeah, he did scout for the Phillies. Scouted for the Phillies in the, in the 40s and probably up to the 50s, up to 51, 52, to the Braves from 54 to 59. And he came back to the Phillies because <laughs> John Quinn came back. He had some some background on that. He was a catcher, so he really had to know the game. Uh, and he knew pitchers and how to work them and that kind of thing. Is there any one Gonzaga athlete that you remember your dad raving about and may have been the best he ever coached? I would say that in observing, I think he, Gilly, Gilly Lansdale, <laughs> my dad said he was the best pitcher that he coached at Gonzaga. Gilly went to war. I mean, in those years, at this, in the Second World War, uh, seniors from Gonzaga left. They left in their senior year, and then after the war, they came back and completed the senior, their senior year. And Gilling, 44, he was, he was a heck of a pitcher. He has he has the strikeout record for, uh, he says, for District of Columbia. But he came back after the war. He went to work for um, Clark Griffith, who owned the Washington Senators. Gilly would call up my dad and say, Joe, I need someone to work the beer garden. 
and you get some kids, get some seniors down there. He didn't have to ask many. He could get some of his ball players and, uh, you know, who wants to work the beer garden? And that's what Gil Lansdale did for the rest of his career is he ran the concessions and oversaw all that for the Washington Senators when they were here. And then when they moved to Minnesota, get some other things in the operation over there. He'd call up every spring, Joe, send me some boys over I can trust. <laughs> and there's a few of them I sent over. I know we're drinking more than they're probably selling. Randy, your dad also taught at Gonzaga. Was there any student that he always raved about, just how smart they were? Of all the students, I think that academically, George Minor was an extraordinary student. My dad loved George Minor. <laughs> He, he did. He said oh, he had the utmost respect for George Minor. He was the best student he's taught academically, yes. Randy, you grew up around Gonzaga. You attended St. Al's, and you were a little kid riding that bus with your dad and all those older players and other coaches. Do you remember any of the specifics of those bus rides? I would be in first or second grade, and my dad would stop the bus entrance to St. Al's right at the gates where you could enter into the lower church and the side entrance came out of St. Al's. And I would come out the door, the nuns would let me out early, maybe a half hour or so. I'd get on the bus and I would ride out to the football practice or I'd ride out to the baseball practice. At that time, they were still practicing baseball on the Florida Avenue market field. I can remember riding out there some of the coaches. I can remember Pete Lorario coached, I think Pete might have coached in 56. Mike Warner, super guy and a super coach. Matter of fact, my dad was the, the uh, godfather for one of Mike's first kids. I, I vividly remember John Jankowski, who actually was a PE teacher at Eastern. His assistant coach was Frank August, who was a PE teacher at Western High School. I mean, those guys related to kids, and they were good coaches, and they were good people. I mean, they, they, they knew the game, but they knew kids better, too. I mean, they really knew how to work with kids. And I thought, oh, man, after, after a game got on the bus, they'd say a rosary. And then after that, well, they just had a good time. They'd just sing songs. Everyone would sing songs, you know. Uh, they'd sing a Bo Diddley song. Everybody would sing a Bo Diddley song. They, they all knew the words. And then someone would chip in with a little rhyme, that kind of thing. And then they'd chip in with, you know, another song that they had. And then they'd always sing, we are Jocosic boys. We always break our toys. Some verses would go with that. And so they hooted and hollered. They had a good time. As a first and second grader and just growing up around that, that must have been so much fun for you. Now, did you ever get to mess around where he would keep all the sports equipment? Because famously, Joe Kozik was the only one who had the keys to the sporting equipment. Oh, man, the cage? Oh, my God. <laughs> that was off limits to everybody. And you, couldn't, you couldn't get in that cage. <laughs> you know, all the equipment and uh, uniforms in the cage for that particular season. Most of the football equipment was stored in there. He had hooks up there, number from 1 to 50. And you turn that uniform in, football after the game. And he would send them out to get laundered. And then in... in uh, basketball, you turned the uniform in at the end of the game, and he had that laundered, and he had a big trunk with the uniforms in. The next game would come, he at the varsity game, bring that trunk in, set it in the locker room. The varsity team came in, and he would hand out the uniform. He collected those uniforms, and he handed them out. And at the end of the season, 
he would send them out and put the football jerseys and pants and things and get them reconditioned. They might need to be sewed and pads would be reconditioned, the hip pads and the shoulder pads and things. Gonzaga wasn't flush with money in those days. I'm not sure they characterize it as flush with money, but things are a little bit better than they were back when your dad was having to get the uniforms re-sewed. That is for sure. One of the things, Randy, that always impressed me about what I remember about your dad was he just seemed so matter-of-fact with people. If you were a legacy, if your older brothers went through the school, he's not just going to allow somebody to be on the team because the older brother was a star two years before, right? No. Oh. Absolutely no. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. You know, if he were the son of somebody that he coached, he would acknowledge that. But there's no guarantee on that. I mean, just fair. He had boys from Southeast, from St. Francis Xavier, good ball players. He had kids from Prince George's County, St. Bernard's, and kids from St. Anthony, you know, parish and some sacrament from all sections of the city. But he, he had one thing that he always said. He said, I don't want you to be a Chevy Chase ball player because he grabs those guys. I want you to be a Chevy Chase ball player, but you go down to the ocean all summer and then come back here and think that you, you know, you want to hit 250. You might be a 220 hitter. He wanted his guys to play ball in the summertime. I want him to go down to the beach. <laughs> He would just, he'd do that to razz him. Randy, you got to watch your dad coach so many games while you were growing up. Is there any one moment that was either really funny or a great win or something that just you'll never forget that your dad did? One of those days in the Easter break and they were playing St. Albans. They played seven innings and still was tied. And so they're at the bottom of the ninth inning. There's a man on first and third and there's one out. My dad's coaching third base, and the toilet's up at bat. So my father gives him the bunch signal because he wants him to squeeze home the run. They can go home. So the toilet looks at this bunch signal, and he calls time. <laughs> he runs down to my dad and meets him halfway, and he says, Coach, I can hit this guy. And, of course, my dad says, Geez, Tony. And not geez. <laughs> geez, Tony. We've been here almost the whole afternoon. There's a man on first and third. Just bunt the ball. We'll get the run in. We can all get our stuff and go home. Coach, I can hit this guy. So my dad says, Tony, bunt the ball. Tony goes back up the bat. Dad goes back to the coaching box. Pitch comes. Totally swings. <laughs> he doesn't bunt. And the ball goes over the left fielder's head. It's a home run, but you only need the one run. So they get back to the bench. And they're all sitting there. And they gather up everything. My dad looks at him and he goes, Natoli, you are something, man. <laughs> you made me look like a made me look like a genius out there. <laughs> then they're going coast it fall one step ahead. They're all coming in and playing for the bunt because he, he said he wanted to make sure the signal was correct. Next thing you know, he swing it away and hit the home run. Randy, in November of nineteen eighty Gonzaga's Alumni Association put on a special testimonial dinner for your dad at the Shoreham Hotel. Uh, John Morris, uh, Pat Buchanan, John Warman, Mike Nolan, and of course, uh, Bill Rowan, who was the uh, chairman who helped put all that together, were a part of this salute slash roast of your dad, and they presented him with a real nice gift. What was it like watching that night through your eyes? I remember what it was like to be down at Gonzaga at that time, to have that spirit, you know, to be a student there, to cheer, to play in athletics, to be in a club, you know, to act in a play, you know, to be part of something. And then, you know, they're in that ballroom 
And they see that still happens, you know, and I, well, I've got telegrams and letters and things from, oh yeah, I've got copies of them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the ones that went came back and talked to friends of theirs, people that they encountered, uh, that they lived back in their hometowns that went to Gonzaga. And those people, people that didn't go, were sending letters to my dad days and weeks after that. It's good to hear from so-and-so, you know. Randy, your dad passed away in 1995, and since then, a bust has been made of your dad that resides in the Carmody Center. It's the Joe Kozik Athletic Hall of Fame. He's so well-remembered at Gonzaga. What did it mean for you and for the family when Gonzaga unveiled that bust? My dad was... uh, my brother was born in 1946 in February, and then I was born in 29th of November, 1948, and my sister was born November 1st in 1949, so she was about 11 months after me. And my mother, uh, I think it was postpartum depression. Not in those days, I didn't know, think they realized how serious it was, but uh she had a nervous breakdown probably two months after that. Uh, and she was, I don't know, they, they gave her shock treatment. She had shock treatments. She had a, at the time, I guess, in 51, 52, they had, I guess they could do a lobotomy where they modify kind of thing. They just kind of stuck a surgical instrument through the, the orbital bone to the eye socket and jiggled the nerves of the frontal lobes of the brain. That was the newest thing out. And so she had that done also. So my dad, basically, she would be in a spring grove or for maybe six months, maybe a year, and she could come home on medication, Thorazine, which kind of just tightened all your muscles up and left you kind of very rigid. So she'd come home for years and then it would be uh you think you don't need the medication anymore so you don't take it well then she'd be back on that cycle again uh, back in the hospital and he had to raise three kids by himself at home and and my poor sister my god he knew nothing about raising girls (laughs) but uh you know i sit there and i think about what what he did at home, what he what he helped us with, and and then what he did down at Gonzaga, that he still kept us focused on them. Thought uh, so that's a great tribute to him. They only knew how hard he worked at that. They'd be amazed too. Oh my gosh, Randy! The Jesuits knew that. All right, I think they really knew that, and that's that helped. I am just getting chills listening to you tell me this story because. It's so similar to what it was like growing up in my house with my dad. He went through electroshock therapy without sedation back in the early 1950s. He had his breakdown shortly after graduating from Gonzaga in 49, so it would have been around the same time. I know what you mean by the Thorazine. Um, If my mom's listening to this and my siblings, everything you feel about your dad, I kind of feel about my mom because she raised six of us. With everything that my dad went through? You know, your mom's a saint. You mentioned how your mom would start feeling better and stop taking the medication, and we went through that as well. So 
my heart goes out to you and your siblings for what you, you guys went through, but you're not alone. And, and you know what? At this stage of life, we've survived. And that's the most important thing. Well, you know what? You're very fortunate. You really are. And uh, we both are very fortunate that we are where we are. You know, All those guys who knew Joe Kozik are going to have this appreciation for how hard he was working for them while carrying you know, that kind of private cross. What, what a man. Yeah, he, he did remarkable things. More, more so at home sometimes. <laughs> Randy, I know you must get this a lot, but you sound so much like your dad. He had such an incredible sense of humor. He was famous for saying things like line up alphabetically according to height, uh, pair off in threes. Did he keep a list of the Kozikisms? <laughs> Once they got recognized, he kept using them. <laughs> He would keep a list of, of sayings and things that you could use. He, he knew what he was doing, I think, like Yogi Bear, you know, would, would have his sayings. Well, Randy, for those of us who remember your dad, hearing you with the laugh in your voice, uh, it, it it's great. It's just great that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So uh, just keep the laughter going. We're trying. We're trying. I've got a little comic side to me, but... <laughs> There's no way to celebrate Gonzaga's bicentennial without celebrating the contributions of a man who was a part of the school's history for the better part of 50 years, Joe Kozik. So thank you for sharing the memories and also letting us in on a little more that maybe many at Gonzaga had no idea that Joe was going through. So thank you so much. Appreciate your time. God bless, Brian. I'm from the heart, man. You take care. God bless Joe Kozik and God bless Gonzaga. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. Now, one of the stories we mentioned was the 1980 event at the Shoreham Hotel, a testimonial dinner to celebrate Joe Kozik that was organized by a member of the class of 57, Bill Rowan. There was over a thousand people there, and it was one of these things that people were, you know, they'd do anything to get a ticket to, the, to this event because it was honoring Kozik. My recollection is that Gonzaga was going through tough times at that, and this was kind of a, you know, here's a man who really has been instrumental in the school. Let's honor him. He was given a car and the speakers were myself, a guy named Mike Nolan, who was a great all-met in for Joe and uh, Pappy Cannon, who of course stands on his own reputation as one of Gonzaga's most wonderful graduates. Let me read you, and I hope it doesn't bore listeners, a page or two of my speech about Kozik. Please. In freshman history, we immediately confronted one of Gonzaga's most famous personalities, the legendary Joe Kozik. After four years as a Penn State running back, he brought his toughness to Gonzaga for 50 years as a coach, teacher, and advisor. The stories about him are legion. When you pass his bust in the gym, remember these. As the football coach, Kozik led Gonzaga in the late 40s and early 50s to the number one ranking in the city. At a famous night game in Virginia, a fight erupted between players on the field. Then Gonzaga's winning touchdown was called back. Next, Virginia fans came out onto the field and began fighting the players. No Gonzaga player would ever admit it, but a Polish voice on the purple side was heard to say to the bench, Okay, boys, let's go get him. Joe Daly crucified the language with phrases like pair up in threes. Okay, line up in alphabetical order, according to height. He carried a keychain the size of a baseball. If anybody was caught talking, he regularly hurled the keys in the direction of the student. If there was some question about a grade, he shut you up with his humiliating words. If you don't like it, get your mother down here. Joe believed the true Gonzaga men came from the hard scrabble areas of the city. 
Anacostia, Turkey Thicket, and so on. I well remember his words to me, and I don't remember the occasion or what it was about. He said to me one time, Rowan, you're nothing but a hot dog from Chevy Chase. On the outside, Joe was a really tough man, but on the inside, he loved each one of us. On an extreme cold winter day, one of his students appeared with only a sweater, and Joe called the boy in and asked him, why didn't he wear his overcoat? Because I don't have one. Joe's gruff voice yelled at the boy, see me after school. And when the student walked in, Joe threw him a peacoat. Here, wear this. Now get the hell out of here. Many years later, that same student, now the head of his own company, returned that same peacoat to Kozik. But in the pocket was a check made payable to Gonzaga in the amount of $20,000. As a student body, we saw Joe Kozik as the epitome of Gonzaga. Excuse me. Spirited, tough, and loving. I'm sure you would probably agree. When kids leave Gonzaga and graduate, go about their way. And then years later, if they come back or get into a conversation with somebody about the school, invariably, if they ask about a person, they'll say, is Kuzik still there? How's he doing? And during your time on I Street back in the 50s, he was always the last guy they'd bring out at the pep rallies, right? And this was why it was so great to go to an all-male high school. The players would chant for Kozik to speak, and he'd always be the last person. He always dressed exactly the same way. He had a blue blazer on uh, with gold buttons, and he had a striped tie. But when he was outside, he wore a, either a coach's hat or what I call a uh, pork pie uh, rain hat type situation. I guess it was because he was bald. but And he would get up there, and he'd give a fire and brimstone speech, and of course, wouldn't take much to stir up a bunch of 16, 17, 18-year-olds. For so many Gonzaga students, the way their lives turned out because of the kindness that maybe Joe Kozik showed is the real testimonial. You're living proof, aren't you, Judge? Brian, you asked me that question, you're going to make me start crying. When I was a senior, Kozik, who never coached me, contacted the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy to recommend uh, a scholarship, an athletic scholarship, or they didn't give the athletic scholarships, but recommended mission for playing football. He contacted Holy Cross, and I got a half scholarship from them. He contacted Villanova, and I got a half scholarship from them. And I ended up going to the University of Detroit in the Midwest on an uh, athletic scholarship. I never knew whether Kozik was involved with the University of Detroit. But because he'd gone so much out of his way to help me, I, I felt indebted for the rest of my life to him. And I did a lot of things that I could do uh, to, quote, pay him back, close quote, for all his kindness. There's no way you can repay a man like that. And, and I'm, I've talked about him a, a lot in, with regards to athletics, but he was no different whether you played nothing. They were all the same to him. And the boys looked upon him that way. It didn't matter whether you were involved in athletics or you were not involved in athletics. He was Joe, a fixture and legend at Gonzaga. And uh, because, you know, you know, he was like the heart and soul of the school. When Koza got sick, I went to see him in the hospital. And then when he died, his family asked me if I would be a pallbearer at his funeral. And it was really one of the most terrific honors that uh, I have ever been a part of. St. Al's was filled with standing room only. I, I've never seen so many people. But the big thing was that if you were in a pew and you were in the front pews 
where you'd gone to communion early, walking, seeing the boys come, or the men, they were now men coming back. It was like watching a video of Gonzaga. You know, there were personalities from all of the years there. They were all ages. Uh, and I remember that vividly of what a tribute it was to Joe to have all ages there. And they were there. Some fond memories of Joe Kozik from Bill Rowan of the class of 57. That puts a wrap on episode 23 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. Love the feedback. Podcast at Gonzaga.org. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, tap that five-star rating and write a review if you wouldn't mind. That helps us with the algorithms. And be sure to follow, subscribe, and share these episodes with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time, ad maiorium dei gloriam. And hail Gonzaga. Oh.